Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen. This week we'll be looking at issue number 573, November 25th, 1995, £1.50 pence every Wednesday. I have returned from my holidays and it was bloody lovely, thank you very much. Um, yeah, for those that were listening last week, I before I went away, I did three podcasts in a week and it was bloody exhausting. So I'll be honest, it was actually nice to have a week off of uh, not worrying about what was going on in Kerrang! in 1995. But here I am, back. I'm refreshed. I've had a lovely break. I was uh, swimming with tropical fishes in the Red Sea and it was bloody wonderful. It was very well needed. And now I've returned to England. It's November. The World Cup's about to start and it's Christmas. <laughs> I just feel, I feel very, very discombobulated. And um, <laughs> I don't really know. I don't really know like where I am at the moment. Obviously I know where I am, I'm at home. But I don't really know, it was weird to like have a late break, like a late summer holiday, but then come back to Christmas, but the World Cup's kicking off. It's so strange, such, just such a weird, weird time. Anyway, you don't wanna hear about, um, you don't wanna hear about my holiday, do you? Because you probably haven't been away. <laughs> You've probably been stuck in England while it's been raining. So I'm gonna stop talking about that because there is nothing worse than hearing about someone else's lovely trip. Oh, by the way, the scaffolders are back. Do you remember my uh, lovely dealings with the scaffolders? So they came before and they put up uh, scaffolding at the back and then they disappeared and then they took it down. And now we're having the entire place scaffolded. So I'm taking this time on the weekend where they're not outside my flat screaming and shouting to record this podcast. Uh, Hopefully I can get it done before they return on Monday morning to continue shouting and listening to Capital FM at full blast and yeah, pulling ropes up and down. And also putting a dent in my car in the windscreen. Absolute bastards. Sorry if there's any scaffolders listening. I'm sure you're lovely scaffolders if you're listening to this podcast, but the rest of the bloody scaffolding world, you can all piss off. Cover stars for this week are Bon Jovi. Yawn. Read all about it. Bon Jovi in Mexico, behind closed doors with the world's biggest band. Win, scratch card numbers inside. Free posters, Smashing Pumpkins, Aerosmith, Metallica, Wild Hearts, Ginger Caught by the Fuzz, Green Day, The Lost Recordings, Pantera, Are They Set to Split, Metallica and Sepultura, The Side Band from Hell, Fear Factory, Soul Asylum, Korn, Ozzy, Foo Fires, Have They Captured You on Camera, A Ministry, I Want It to Kill, says Main Man Al. As is patently obvious, I have not used Bon Jovi as the music for this week's episode. I am a little bit over Bon Jovi. I feel like he's been on the cover probably about 50% of this year. It, well, it, obviously not, I'm over-exaggerating, but it does feel like every week, if he's not on the cover, then there is just stuff in the po- in the, um, sorry, in the magazine all about Bon Jovi, and it's just a lot, I'll be honest. It is a lot. I know that he sells the magazines. They were the biggest band in 1995. I totally get it from a commercial point of view. I, I really do, but just from someone that's you know reading the magazines, I've got a passing interest in Bon Jovi. I think he writes some great songs. John Bon Jovi and the rest of the band. I think they've had some incredible songs. I think they just write classic rock. But, you know, you can have too much of a good thing. And uh, basically, as well as the scaffolders, John Bon Jovi, you can piss off too. (laughs) So the music for this week, obviously, is Adrenaline by Deftones. So in this week's um, copy of the magazine. There are two mentions of Deftones and we will get there when we get there. If you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang Back Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerrang Back Issues, Twitter, Kerrang Pod, and email, Kerrang Back Issues at gmail.com. Also, 
If you would like to leave us a review on Apple Music or Spotify, please do go ahead and leave us a glowing 5K review over there. Uh, if you want to give us a crap review, <laughs> I don't know why you would, then please don't do that. Please uh, send me a message and tell me what you'd want to hear from this um, podcast. There's anything you want to change? There's anything you're interested in? Get in touch with me. I'm all ears. I'm always happy to have some feedback. Anyway, let's get on with this week's uh, episode of the podcast. This issue was created with the following stimulants. Foo Fighters' guitarist Pat Smear's Rob Halford-esque stage outfit, season to risk seriously overlooked eponymous Columbia debut LP from 93, a phone call from Ray Capo, Malcolm Dome bollocking Burton C. Bell for phoning him two hours late, John Moore and his Cadbury's chocolate fingers, Moratz exploding motorbike, the West Brom raffle and seeing TV's Nick Hancock on a 23 bus. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Starting this week with news. Fear Factory will headline a Kerrang! Christmas party at London's Astoria Theatre on December 21st. They will be supported by Geezer, the band formed by ex-Black Sabbath current Ozzy Osbourne bassist Geezer Butler, who will be making their UK live debut at the show. Kerrang!'s very own Morat will DJ for the night. A third band will be added to the bill in the near future. Tickets for the event, priced £8 in advance, nine quid on the door, are on sale now from the Astoria box service and all usual outlets. The Christmas party will see Fear Factory's Burton C. Bell attempting to match suicidal tendencies infectious grooves man Mike Muir's feet of fronting two bands in one night. Bell, of course, also sang on Geezer's debut album Plastic Planet. It doesn't worry me at all, Bell insists. Geezer will do a half-hour set, then there'll be a 40-minute gap before I do an hour with Fear Factory. I don't have any specific plans to keep my voice from going. I've been touring with Fear Factory for long enough now to know that my voice can take it. The only thing I'll have to make sure of is that I don't start doing Fear Factory songs during Geezer's set and vice versa. Before Geezer's first ever show at the Limelight in New York, I puked up. So I won't be eating all day before the Astoria show because my nerves will be at an all-time high on that night. Geezer Butler adds, Burton is panicking a bit, but from Geezer's point of view, at least we know that if his voice does suffer, then it'll be during Fear Factory's set and not during ours. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Fear Factory will go into Enterprise Studios in California at the end of January to work on a new mini-album entitled Remanufacture. It will feature remixes of several tracks from their acclaimed Demanufacture album. Foo Fighters will be the subject of a major MTV special which is scheduled to be aired early next year. MTV spent two days filming the band during their recent sellout shows at London's Brixton Academy, shooting both the band's live sets and also interviewing fans and Dave Grohl, Pat Smear, Nate Mendel and William Goldsmith. The Foo Fighters played two brand new songs at their Brixton show, The Best, a short, sharp, punk, pop lurch called My Hero and a cover of the Angry Samoans Gas Chamber. In the wake of their UK tour, the quartet are being strongly linked with a headlining slot at next year's Reading Festival. Foo Fighters' new single, For All The Cows, is out now on Roswell Capital. Turn to page 24 for the Foo Fighters' live review. Green Day will have one of their earliest and rarest live recordings released on a British compilation album entitled S&M this month. The San Francisco superstars were taped at Newport TJ's on December 23rd, 1991, playing at the library, the studio version of which is on the 1039 Smoothed Out Slappy Hours LP by Gary Hunt, who had booked them at the bottom of the bill uh, act on a Christmas special, which also featured headliners Midway Steel and Bath Punk's Knucklehead. 
Hunt has continued recording bands for the past four years for SM. I asked Green Day's permission at the time, and they were well up for it, explained Hunt. Maybe they've forgotten about it now. I remember at the gig, main man Billy Joe Armstrong entered the fancy dress competition. He took his clothes off, put on a nappy, and said he was Jesus. The album also features live recordings from the likes of Girls Against Boys, Stay In The Car, John Spencer, Introduction, Welsh punk mob, Cowboy Killers, Satisfied With Life, and Huggy Bear, the spectacularly titled, We've Got Our Knobs Out And We're Rioting. <laughs> and interview excerpts with arch noise guru Steve Albini and Girls Against Boys. A 40-page magazine is packaged with S&M. It contains copies of Fax's Green Day Center Hunt, giving him permission to use at the library, with Billy Joe Armstrong adding, I don't have a picture or anything except for this stationery. And Albini discussing his ex-bands Big Black and Rape Man, his new outfit, and his production work with the Jesus Lizard, but not, sadly, Nirvana on In Utero. Ash, the Irish punk pop upstarts, will play a free outdoor show in Edinburgh on New Year's Eve. The concert, which is expected to attract as many as 16,000 fans, will take place on the city's famous Princes Street and is scheduled to start at 11.15pm. Ash are likely to perform in full Celtic dress and be accompanied by a pipe player. They will be supported by ludicrously sideburned Britpop mob Supergrass. Ash, who are currently touring the US, will also play two Christmas shows in Ireland with Therapy and Joyrider at Dublin Point Theatre on December 28th and Belfast Ulster Hall on December 30th. In addition, the trio released a limited edition 1000 copies red vinyl 7-inch single through their own Plastic Fantastic label on November 27th. It's a cover of soul legend Smokey Robinson's Get Ready, backed by a new original 00 and will be available exclusively in indie record shops. Ash's new and as yet untitled album is set to appear next spring. It will be followed by a major tour that is almost certain to take in a headlining date at London's Brixton Academy during April. Metallica bassist Jason Newsted, Machine Head guitarist vocalist Rob Flynn and Sepultura guitarist Andreas Kisser have joined forces in a side band called Quarteto de Pingue, the name coming from the lethal Brazilian alcoholic drink Pingue. The quartet, completed by former Exodus drummer Tom Hunting, intend to keep the project as underground as possible. We're doing this purely for our own amusement, insists Flynn, who shares vocal duties with Newstead. Jason lives near me, and he's been saying for ages that we should jam. Tom is also a friend, and Andres was around at the right time. Cotetto de Pingue have already recorded a free track tape, but they have no plans to release it. The only way you'll be able to get a hold of a copy is through the tape trading underground scene, says Flynn. But even then, we're going to have to search hard to find a copy. We've done two of our own songs plus a really heavy version of Motorhead's No Class that will blow people away. Flynn is currently completing a 10-week US club tour with ex-brewed drummer Will Carroll standing in for the departed Chris Contos. They will begin writing new material once the tour is over before going into the studio next spring to record their second album. The Beastie Boys will release a pure, unadulterated punk rock mini-album through their own Grand Royal label with distribution by Cargo on November 27th. Entitled Aglio e Olio, it harkens back to the band's early days as a breakneck punk band and will feature eight brand new tracks and have a running time of under 10 minutes. The album is also likely to be the only Beastie Boys release until at least the middle of 1996. At present, the trio Mike, D, Adrock and MCA are working on material for their official follow-up to the hugely successful Ill Communication. Phil Anselmo has dismissed rumours that he will eventually leave Pantera to concentrate on Down. The band he formed with Corrosion of Conformities, Pepper Keenan and members of Crowbar and I Hate God and numerous other side projects. 
It's absolutely untrue, Anselmo insists. As a matter of fact, we just got through writing all the new Pantera music last night. The new shit's fucking brutal. I haven't written all my lyrics yet, but I know for a fucking fact that the music by itself is ripping. Anselmo hopes that the next Pantera record will be released uh, by next March. In the meantime, Down are likely to follow their acclaimed NOLA record with a live video in the near future. Somebody videotape the New York show and we might put that out, says Anselmo. As for the chances of another album, we're just going to see what NOLA does. All of us have priorities with our own bands, but once those are out of the way, I'm sure we'll all sit down and write some more stuff. Aside from Pantera and Down, Anselmo is also involved in six other bands. Black Metal Act, Crass Inversion and Hardcore Sludge Outfit Superjoint Ritual among them. He is also set to contribute to the next Anal Come album and also to the soundtrack of an as yet untitled movie based on the life of Charles Manson. Soul Asylum main man Dave Perna has hit out at respected US rock magazine Rolling Stone after they reported that he had drunkenly claimed to be the finest songwriter of his generation in a cover story earlier this year. This week, Perna responded to the magazine's allegations. Allegedly is the key word he snaps. I never said that stuff. I would never say anything like that. Soul Asylum have just finished a world tour in support of their million-selling Let Your Dim Light Shine album, a new single just like anyone is lifted from the album this week. It's back with a live recording of Eddie and the Hot Rods' much-covered standard Do Anything You Wanna Do. Three more tracks are featured across the single's two CD formats, one more live number, Get On Out, plus demo versions of Fearless Leader and You'll Live For Now. Perna has also revealed that the band are due to begin work on a new album within the next couple of months, after which they'll head straight back out on tour. Soul Asylum have already written a number of tracks and are currently deciding upon a producer with Butch Vig, who helmed Let Your Din Light Shine, now committed to his own band Garbage. Ministry main man Al Jorgensen has revealed that he wanted to kill somebody after his widely publicised drugged bust and his brief slip from his longtime partner Paul Barker. If I could have gotten away with it, I wanted to kill everyone, Jorgensen admits. If I'd had a licence to kill, I'd have killed anything from a 7-Eleven clerk to my best friend. I was pig-biting mad. Jorgensen's house in Austin, Texas was raided by US law enforcement officers on August 29th, the day he was due to move out. He was forced to post a $10,000 bail bond but has yet to be charged with any offence. I was down in Austin for three days to pack up the last of my stuff, explained Jorgensen. I'd been there for just another 24 hours when Johnny's SWAT team jumped me and found basically nothing. I still haven't been formally indicted or charged and I have no previous offences. In the news um, piece in Kerrang now, they have something called Next Big Thing. I usually don't read these out because they're either bands... Um, that end up blowing up and we all know about all their bands that I've never actually heard of and never hear from again. The one this week is very interesting. Next big thing, Deftones. Who are they? A four-piece from Sacramento, California who specialise in tortured, aggressive, new metal. Debut album Adrenaline is out now on Maverick. Oh, by the way, new metal is spelled N-E-W metal, not N-U metal as it came to be known. Lineup: Chino Marino vocals, Stephen Carpenter guitar, Chi Cheng bass, Abe Cunningham drums. They sound like prong cross with bad brains and corn. The band themselves cite Jane's Addiction and Smashing Pumpkins as influences. Strange but true. When they supported bad brains in the US this summer, a rumour started that Deftones were the headliners crew who were allowed to play as a reward for putting up with the brains' tantrums. Next big thing. Odds, 5 to 1. They're off to a good start in the US. Adrenaline is currently at number 11 in the metal charts and climbing.
American news, starting this week with Don K in New York. We weren't there, but Aerosmith played a secret show at their Boston club Mamakin this past weekend to test out new material and air some vintage tunes they haven't played for years. Only 200 guests were invited to the show, but our sources say the new material is bluesy and rootsier and harkens back to the band's earlier albums. If so, it'll be a welcome return after the oversaturation of ballads on Get A Grip. News is that the next Aerosmith album is now nearing completion and will be released next year, although when is still undecided. Back in the Rotten Apple, the city has been reeling from the news of Bobby Hamble's exit from Biohazard. Although the split was officially announced as amicable, it's no secret that the guitarist's alleged personal problems have led to continued friction within the band. But hopefully, both parties will now be able to put the breakup behind them. Biohazard are set to enter the studio and there's no word as yet on whether they intend to find someone to replace Hamble for recording purposes. In the wake of Paul Bostaff's departure from Slayer, apparently he wants to pursue his solo project The Truth About Seafood, the band's former drummer Dave Lombardo's name has surfaced as a possible replacement. If so, he'd be making his third comeback with the band. Deaf drummer Gene Hoglan is also said to be interested in the vacant Slayer seat. The veteran Florida thrash band are reportedly on hold while main man Chuck Schuldiner pursues other musical projects. Also rumour has it that Deaf are likely to part with their record company Roadrunner. Finally, and still on the drumming front, we hear that ex-Machine Head man Chris Contos is writing and jamming with Testament. It certainly is a small world. The big event of the week in New York was the official playback of Alison Chains' self-titled new album at Tower Records in Greenwich Village. Guitarist Jerry Cantrell was in attendance to sign autographs and take questions over a national radio link-up, though this time not in a dress. Next up, we have Lisa Johnson in LA. The Red Hot Chili Peppers have postponed their US tour after drummer Chad Smith broke his arm during a baseball game on November 9th in Los Angeles. The band did manage to play a scheduled appearance on America's most popular chat show, The Late Show with David Letterman. Chad played one-armed, his left one being in the cast from fingers to shoulder. The Late Show regular drummer hit the snare off camera. What a trooper. The Chili's tour was originally scheduled to begin in Denver on November 13th and is expected to be delayed by about three months. Entrance into Kerrang's silver chair competition, who were the Chili Peppers support act, should keep their eye on Kerrang for an update on the competition. The first prize, a trip to New York with a band, is now likely to happen in February. Weezy guitarist Brian Bell played a benefit gig at Spaceland in Silver Lake, East Hollywood with his side band Space Twins. The benefit dubbed Just Cause was for everybody's friend Justine, who is fighting cancer and raised over $6,000. Also on the bill were Beck, Lifter, Drill Team, two new sign-ins to No Name Record, Dashboard Profits and Florising, and a host of local bands. Some items raffled off included signed books by Henry Rollins, artist Robert Williams, the man responsible for GNR's Appetite for Destruction cover, and a signed Madonna box set. Remember the electric love hogs? Don't worry, nobody else does either. Anyway, here's an update on their singer, John Feldman. He's got a hot new band called Goldfinger, who sound like a cross between Green Day and Face to Face. Next up, we have Kevin Roberts in Seattle. Classics and grunge collided for a one-off musical experience in cyberspace and Seattle. A concert at the city's Paramount Theatre united classical musicians from the Seattle Symphony Orchestra with assorted members of Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Screaming Trees and even Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash. The unlikely pairing between the polar opposites of the musical scale, Siberian Rhapsody also became the first concert to be broadcast live on the internet to computer users across the world. 
During the hour-long show, some of Seattle's top names, Soundgarden drummer Matt Cameron, Chris DeGarmo and Jeff Tate from Queensryche, Alison Chains bassist Mike Inez and Screaming Trees Mad Season drummer Barrett Martin accompanied a full orchestra in front of a mixed crowd made up of the usual ball gown and tiara-wearing symphony crowd and plaid and short-clad <laughs> rock fans. Among the Seattle classics given the symphonic treatment were Alison Chains' I'll Stay Away, Screaming Trees for Celebrations Past, Soundgarden's Black Old Sun and Nirvana's All Apologies, during which stills of Kurt Cobain were projected onto a backdrop. Screaming Trees' drummer Martin, who's actually a classically trained musician, was the first performer of the night to receive a standing ovation from the sellout crowd. Before the show, he commented, I'm sort of in awe of the whole thing. In this particular rock band, we don't really write out our music. The finale of the concert saw Martin and Matt Cameron hammering out a raucous drum duet, which led into three songs by Seattle's most famous son, Jimi Hendrix. At the end of this, Slash joined Mike Inez and the symphony in another tribute to the deceased guitar god. The concert succeeded in raising more than $50,000 for charity. The implications of putting a live show on via the internet impressed Barrett Martin. He said, if it's a really good transmission with perfect digital reproduction, there's no reason why this couldn't expand into interlinking recording studios around the world. Musicians would be able to play with each other in real time with perfect reproduction, even though they're separated by thousands of miles. And you wondered why it was taking Mark Lanigan and co so long to come up with a new Trees album. On location. Let's hope this week's on location is better than that absolute travesty last week where we went shopping with Shauna Uzel from White Zombie. That was really bad. Sorry again for reading that out. This week, Steve Beebe reports from Fear Factory's secret Birmingham show. I got no more goddamn regrets. I got no more goddamn respect. Tattooed human war zone, Burton C. Bell shoulders hunched, whips himself around this tiny stage. An awesome avalanche of bruised and darkened souls hold themselves at both the stage and each other. Never in the field of human conflict has there been a band quite like Fear Factory, nor has anything like this ever taken place at Birmingham's Exposure Rock Cafe. For this year hell of it, Fear Factory have taken a break from their current tour with Ozzy Osbourne to perform this one-off secret gig to an overwhelmed crowd of 670 people jammed into the place. The band came with little warning. They summoned forth an apocalypse of aggression and state-of-the-art 90s havoc. Walls trembled, rib cages shook, limbs were twisted, vision became blurred, it hurt. From up on a stairway overlooking the stage, the scene below looks like a preview of World War III. The manufacturer is an oral battering while self-bias resistor and replica mangle the senses with their outrageous blend of mechanized mayhem and melody. Hundreds of drenched faces gasp for air while shrinking every last word to martyr. Everyone's frustration and anger is expelled in a six-song cathartic assault. You can surf the high for yourself and taste a sweet relief when it's over. Fear Factory are incredible musicians who are happy to make time for their fans. It's hard to imagine these four individuals with their bleak vision of machines usurping mankind mingling with the crowd. But offstage, they are genial and charming, laughing and chatting with fans, signing autographs, no one would have guessed that throughout the evening, Burton C. Bell was struggling to keep his dinner down, smitten with a serious bout of gastric flu. Tonight was a hugely memorable experience. No one paid to get in and no one seemed to want to leave. Despite the energy sapping heat, after the show, schmoozers including Napalm Death and Frontline Assembly's Reese Fulber congregated in the Rock Cafe's upstairs bar to pay their respects to the hottest, fiercest band of 1995. Fear Factory have developed into a potent force. They possess an individual strength, an extra dimension that sets them apart from the rest of the pack, and they could conceivably evolve into one of the biggest metal acts on the planet. 
They'll be back before the year is over for a one-off Karen gig. Barter your soul for a ticket if you can't get hold of one by the manufacturer anyway and eviscerate your neighbours. Beavis, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Next up in Karen, we have Lives. The first concert reviewed this week is Foo Fighters, supported by Built to Spill, live at Town and Country Club Leeds on Sunday, November the 12th. This one is reviewed by Paul Brannigan, and he gives this 5 out of 5. No offence to Built to Spill, but they're just getting in the way tonight. The American Quartet play pleasant, unthreatening indie tunes with some neat guitar and cello interplay. No one notices, no one cares. The high point is when they announce they're leaving the stage. Hurry up then. Going on the huge buzz of anticipation in here, you'd half expect Jesus Christ himself to walk out and strap on the battered Gibson Explorer centre stage. Instead, we get the next best thing. There is a point in Watershed when Dave Grohl hollers just another rock band. Nothing can be further from the truth when the Foo Fighters are concerned. The sad fact is that in an ideal world, this band wouldn't even exist because Dave Grohl would still be the incredible drummer in a certain Seattle grunge trio. That Grohl has re-emerged from the tragic darkness of April 94, leading the hottest new band around is nothing short of miraculous. It's understandable but unfair that the Foo Fighters are going to be dogged with comparisons to Nirvana. Their music may resonate with the same emotional intensity, but Grohl is very much his own man. Moulding three chords and the truth into gloriously personal dirty shapes. This is no pale, empty imitation. It's the exhilarating rush of bright new possibilities. Grohl is a cool, amiable, somewhat gawky frontman. I'm kind of new to this, he mumbles at one point. I don't really know what to say yet. Fortunately, his music requires no such timid excuses. The Foo Fighters' self-titled debut is arguably the album of the year, and live the songs are even stronger and more intense. The Foo's aren't afraid to twist and distort their recorded work, fashioning a cool, dissonant coda onto ecstatic and turning floaty into a haunting, slow crawl. But it's their bouncing, beaming punk pop which works best. This is a call, and for all the cows are tremendous. Grohl and Pat Smear absolutely hammering those gorgeous harmonies out of their guitars. We can either start this the Pixies way or the Def Leppard way, Grohl laughs before fracturing good grief into a thousand shiny slivers. Oh George and Winnebago are sharp blasts of locked in rage, melodies bubbling above flurries of tangled guitar lines. Big Me is this year's jangliest love song, one smooth croon of blue skies and melting hearts. Just to be awkward, the Foos finish this evening with a cover version and a new song. Gas Chamber is a short, jagged, angry Samoans tune, while My Hero sounds like another fizzy pop stormer, further proof that the Foo Fighters have everything it takes to be major players on the 90s rock scene. For now, they're damn near perfect. Here's hoping the best is yet to come. The next review this week is for Machine Head supported by Stuck Mojo at the Limelight New York on Sunday, October 29th. Reviewed by Don K, this gets 5 out of 5. The Machine Head juggernaut keeps rolling along. Even with the temporary setback of replacing their drummer, there's no permanent skin beater to replace the departed Chris Contos as yet, and the pressure of developing a new album, this live engine just gets hotter and hotter. Stuck Mojo opened things up in a spectacular fashion. Much has been said about this band's complete dominance of a stage, and all of it is correct. Waves of energy riding on monstrous slams of thick, down-tuned riffs emanate from this Atlanta quartet as they soar across the stage. Some of the material sounds a little too generic live, but tunes like Who's the Devil and the awesome Not Promised Tomorrow contain the seeds of a solid songwriting unit. Their feet never touch the boards once during the set. As for Machine Head, their set contained no surprises. 
The new Frontlines and a cover of Slayer's classic South of Heaven both aired at recent shows were conspicuously absent here. Yet it's still always a blast to hear the quartet run through most of the Burn My Eyes album one more time, because they still do it with such fearsome conviction. Rob Flynn's roar sounds as fresh and full of venom as it did the last time they were here, way back at the beginning of the year. And those riffs, Death Church for instance, is slowed down considerably, becoming an almost unbearably tense death march. Drummer Will Carroll, recruited out of a Bay Area band called Brood, does a competent villain job, losing his place only once or twice. He nails the double bass parts and is precise on the crucial grooves that propel Machine Head songs. Even without a fully integrated and equal lineup, Machine Head still kick major ass. They'll be promoting a new album next time around, and judging from the crowd's response here tonight, America can't wait. The next review is for Ozzy Osbourne, supported by Fear Factory at City Hall Sheffield on Tuesday, November the 14th. This one is reviewed by Liam Charles, and this one also gets 5 out of 5. What's happening here, man? This is the quietest audience I've ever seen. Fear Factory main man Burton C. Bell is not getting the reaction he might have hoped for. It might have seemed like a great idea on paper, the new breed lending some contemporary relevance to the old guard and getting the collective ear of the Aussie audience for half an hour in return. But this is a very old school crowd. Denim and leather is still the garb of choice and as for Fear Factory, well, they're yanks aren't they? Admittedly, Fear Factory must be hard work for the uninitiated. They can be a tad one dimensional, though they do have the dimension covered so very well that it's difficult to really find fault. There are no songs about anything nice, just an abundance of superhuman utterances from Bell, skull-cracking riffs, kick drums you could sink a battleship with, and keyboards so ominously threatening they make Tycho negative sound about as gothic as the monkeys. In less salubrious surroundings and with their own crowd, Replica and Zero Signal will enable Fear Factory to melt walls. No such problems for Ozzy Osbourne. Everybody loves Ozzy, we love him, because no matter how much he hates to admit it, he is the nearest thing to a flesh and blood embodiment of this thing we call heavy metal. And because he does things like um, taking out full page ads in national magazines to individually thank everyone who sent him a goodwill message when he was in a spot of bother once. We love Ozzy because he likes to get buckets of water and tip them all over the bouncers. And they must love Ozzy as well because even though they've just taken a good soaking from the world's oldest juvenile delinquent, they're all grinning like pigs in shit. We love Ozzy for teaming up with Geezer Butler again and for finding a guitar player as cool as Joe Holmes. And we love Ozzy for playing Paranoid. First, grown men are crying tears of joy. Then there's I don't know, Flying High Again, Iron Man, Suicide Solution, War Pigs and No More Tears. We love him for all of these. Shit, we can even forgive him for Mum Rum coming home and for not playing a sausage from his rather decent osmosis record. We love him so much and we can overlook the fact that his voice is hardly spectacular and that he moves with all the cat-like grace of a man who's just been struck by lightning. We love Ozzy's new warm-up video featuring him vocalising with the Beatles and telling Forrest Gump to F off. 3,000 people pissed themselves laughing. Most of all though, we love Ozzy just for being Ozzy. One constant in an ever-changing world. Ozzy is the real king of rock and roll. Finally this week, we have Black Sabbath supported by Skyclad. This one took place at Civic Hall Wolverhampton on Thursday, November the 9th. Reviewed by Steve Beebe, this one gets a 3 out of 5. It's always a pleasure to find Skyclad on the bill, particularly when you're expecting obscure doomsters tear map. By the time they reach another fine mess and old favourite spinning Jenny, this half-full venue has warmed to the cause. Skyclad continue to wallow in violins and keyboards, paying tribute to legends, war and ale. Celtic, thrash, folk core, anyone. Which leaves Black Sabbath. 
the original Kings of Heaviness with a hard act to follow. Sabbath, however, have polished their act to such clinical perfection you can see your face in it. Tonight they are a blizzard of all things heavy, but for all that, there is clearly a journey back in time. Sabbath 95 can plug new album Forbidden all they like, but they're wasting their breath. You may as well forget The Shining and The Headless Cross too. It's War Pigs people are here for, and Iron Man, and Sabbath bloody Sabbath. When the classics do come, they're greeted by a sea of devil signs. Iommi still a profoundly evil looking man, nods knowingly, as he lurches tidal wave after tidal wave of remorseless power. Black Sabbath is music to hang yourself to, a deep deep pit of despair made all the darker by the expressionist guitarist's sonic rages. Awesome. Tony Martin is a good vocalist, who spouts oldy worldy drivel between songs. He is also not Ozzy Osbourne. This is a major problem, if only for the reason that Ozzy sings in a much higher register, and Martin is therefore not in a position to make the Sabbath classics come to life with the same tearful hysteria. But as long as Tony Iommi is prepared to continue repeating those grim primal riffs, Sabbath will stagger on. We now come to this week's cover stars, Behind Closed Doors. When the music's over and the crowds have gone, what's life really like in Bon Jovi? In a Kerrang exclusive, Jason Arnott flies to Mexico for a rare peek into the private world of the biggest band on the planet. The cafeteria plonked mercilessly close to a series of aeroplane landing strips on Mexico City's Toluca Airport is especially full on this bright afternoon. As the TV buzzes out a Mexican equivalent of ancient Brit game show It's a Knockout, diners huddle around tables. Some are teenage girls, many of them dressed to kill. One we learn is the daughter of the owner of this airport, or the president, something like that. Occasionally, the whir of a small plane coming into land causes heads to crane upwards, eyes anxiously scanning the skies. The excitement is tangible. Bon Jovi are coming. Obviously, the landing place and time of the New Jersey Rockers' private plane have been kept secret. But 40 or 50 diehard fans are patiently awaiting the arrival of the world's biggest rock band. One small boy, whose hair greased back like a gangster has written Canelo May 9 is on the palm of his hand in messy black ink. His name appears to be Canelo, but whether his star-spangled heroes will have time to stop and decipher the message is in the lap of the gods. When the band's aircraft does finally arrive, the enormous Bon Jovi legend on its side is a dead giveaway. People are now grinning like fools and clutching their autograph pads. After the plane lands, they wait around 20 minutes while the band's gear is unloaded and packed into the three very ordinary looking vans waiting outside. This little convoy is headed by two Mexican cops with the classic padded brown jackets, helmets and shades. Bon Jovi, or at least John and guitarist Richie Sambora, then emerge smiling and make their way straight through to the vans. Once inside, the pair roll down their windows and sign things. John turns young Canelo around and signs the back of his t-shirt. Then in a flash, they're rolling towards the heart of Mexico City. The airport's owner's daughter looks just a little heartbroken as she becomes yet another dot in the distance. Everyone seems to know Bon Jovi, from the friendly cop on a street corner near the hotel, to stall holders, to the cheeky-faced street urchins that Roman packs. While Bon Jovi naturally enjoy the shows, John and Richie are awkwardly silent when asked whether they actually like Mexico. I think we'd rather be in London actually, laughs Richie, with alarming frankness, as the vans work their way towards the hotel, but the fans are enthusiastic for sure. There's not a lot to be negative about Murmur's John, looking subdued in slim black shades. It's definitely a decent arena, twice as big as Wembley, but we're never here long enough. We get here three hours before the show, we're here tomorrow night, then we split, we never get a chance to see anything. Far more European looking than American, Mexico City has places of beauty and squalor alike. 
Ride along one of the dodgier roads at night and you'll see more cold, miserable, underage prostitutes than in Amsterdam and Hamburg put together. Rock shows here are now few and far between. Despite it being the largest city in the world, packing in roughly 22 million human sardines, Page Plant lowered their heavenly stairway into an arena about two weeks ago, and before them came Ozzy Osbourne, the Rolling Stones, and Susie and the Banshees. That's all for 95 folks. The economy in Mexico is screwed, and liable to change at any minute. Up until December, there were three pesos to the US dollar. Then a new president came in and suddenly seven pesos equaled the dollar. People found themselves with half the money they thought they had. John uncomfortably receives the news that kids will probably be spending a month's wages on a ticket to see his band. Wow, I hope not, he winces, staring vacantly out of the window. That's pretty tough to think about, actually. Thanks for piling on the pressure. At least you're giving people something to look forward to. Sure, he nods, brightening. I remember the excitement of buying a ticket for a show. That ticket might be sitting in your bedroom for months while you waited for it to happen. The anticipation of going to the arena, waiting for the house lights to go up, and you as a band have to live up to those expectations. Bon Jovi keyboards with David Bryan later describes the first time they came to Mexico as a friggin' nightmare, recalling the sizable student riot that occurred as a protest towards the gig promoters. We first came here in 89, says John. This is our third time, and the place has come on in leaps and bounds since then. The same way the Far East is becoming more of an everyday tour stop for bands. Iron Maiden recently attempted to be the first band to play Beirut, only to be banned, because they might cause unrest. Would Bon Jovi give the place a shot? It depends, considers John steadying himself as the van turns a sharp corner. I wouldn't risk the safety of our crew. We've been in places like Peru, for instance, where the show was booked, but then the American embassy asked us why in God's name we were coming, so we didn't play. It wasn't for the safety of me or the band, but God forbid if a crew member got hurt, I couldn't have the responsibility to them or their families. This week, Bon Jovi appear at the MTV Awards in Paris, a place currently less safe than usual thanks to a spate of terrorist bomb attacks. But there are rumours of secret gig in London. Just rumours? John shrugs blankly. It wouldn't be a secret if we said anything now, would it? It's a very high security thing, backs up a smiling Richie. We don't even know. The van pulls up in front of the ultra-swanky Four Seasons Hotel, and as it disappears into the underground car lot, a gathering of young females unleash screams fit to bust the eardrums. Richie Sambora spends most of his afternoon sitting in his room. Not a thousand dollar suite, but a room. Strumming away for his mini martial amp, watching baseball, or he'll grab his disman and spin one of the 200 old blue CDs he recently bought. Even Mr. Rentagrin, he chats enthusiastically about everything from Bon Jovi to his new indie record label Mutiny, to his love of the blues and his forthcoming second solo album, currently in the writing stage. He admits that his first solo, Sojourn 1991 Stranger in This Town, was stricken by a fuckload of bad luck, but it was also a crazy record. I mean, he laughs, it started with a men's choir. I enjoyed making it without the pressure of having to sell 10 million copies. Of course, the executives wanted me to come back to Bon Jovi to make the money again. They even cut my tour halfway through. Richie isn't speaking bitterly. Drummer Tico Torres may always appear happily cool as long as he's got a packet of cigarettes in his hand, but Richie is the man who looks most like he's having a blast in Bon Jovi, on stage and off. He is also, by his own admission, nuts. Often lapsing into mad professor alter egos and pulling bizarre faces that you'd never see on Bon Jovi record sleeves. I think everyone's pretty happy in this band, he smiles. I might just be less guarded than some of them. As long as you're in a process of evolution, you're really happy. I've started to really find myself as an artist, and the band doing so well again is cool. Plus, I'm married now, and it's wonderful. Heather's great, so what the fuck's not to be happy about? 
Hollywood actress Heather Locklear, formerly Sammy Joe in the TV soap Dynasty, obviously feels the same about the guitarist. Having recently told US Housewives mag Red Book, everything Richie does is so beautiful and real and passionate. I feel that my heart is always smiling now. Later, it's over to the Los Palacio des Deportes Arena, where the band spend time chilling out in specially lit rooms, decorated with candles and flowers. After two hours plus of sweat, spit and greatest hits, Bon Jovi are bundling back into the van convoy before even the house lights come up. Tico laughs as he points at one of the bike cops. Last time we were here, I bought one of their helmets, clean off their head for a hundred bucks. It recalls John. On the last tour, we sought out different kinds of art just for fun. We looked at Mexican art, Chilean art, mainly because Tico was getting into his painting, so we decided to go along with it. So what's the focus of fun this time around? Mickey Mouse rugs, he laughs, pointing at a huge roadside store selling hundreds of the things. The two cops are definitely working for their money, bringing traffic screeching to a halt as they make way for the free vans. You clearly don't mess with the police in Mexico. During tonight's show, John noticeably resisted making anything approaching a political comment. I could have taken a lot of cheap shots tonight, he admits. I could have said, I know your dollar's been cut in half and your government's corrupt. But what I said was more about the promise of making your own world the best it can be. That way, it becomes universal. The band stretched some tunes out tonight to distressing lengths, almost rivaling Metallica's worst indulgence on stage. Why? Oh, because you have to for fun, defends Richie, and to take it to different places. It'd be so fucking boring to do everything on the record verbatim. When you're doing 150 shows or more, if you don't keep it fresh for yourself, you get bored and so would a crowd. I keep my playing different every night. There's a skeleton of shit that I have to do to please the audience, but I'll always throw my own little new things in there. For me, that's lifeblood. Pop music is very tightly structured. Fuck that. That's why I play the blues all the time. There is no structure. Is the band's heart still in an old song of theirs like debut album classic Runaway? Richie Ringwood's his nose. Hmm, not too much, but it's things you have to do for the people. You have to be giving. The reason we don't play songs from earlier albums anymore is that we no longer think they're good songs. My favourite songs to play are from the latest record these days. They're brand new and we haven't really done them too much. They're more reflective of where we're at in our lives. With respect, why does current bassist Hugh McDonald look like an accountant? Haha, <laughs> Richie chuckles. He just cut his fucking hair off. Some good looking beautician must have got him and said, can I cut your hair off? And he went, okay, if you show me your tits. John concedes that former Alice Cooper, Michael Bowen, session man McDonald, who replaced long-running Jovi bassist Alec John Such last year, may not necessarily be the man still playing with Bon Jovi in the year 2000. I think the situation's much looser than that. I love the guy, and he's a great player. He played in the original run Runaway. I wouldn't want to think about who to replace him with right now, but he shrugs vaguely. The band is the band. Just like family, have Bon Jovi siblings joined them on the road? Well, they were in Europe, says John. Richie's wife Heather came to parts of the Far East. They haven't been around that much otherwise because we go in and out of a lot of places. Travel's pretty tough on the kids. John Bon Jovi looks knackered as his voice trails away. This is not surprising when he's just given his all for 20,000 fans. But he also looks tired beforehand. And that's after a 10-day break. Rock and roll takes it out of you. And John has seen 10,000 blurred roads like these. This tour is way better than any tour we've ever done, he says, snapping his attention away from the bleak streets outside. But in all honesty, when it's all over, we'll be really glad. I'm starting to think about laying down and taking naps, taking it easy, sleeping in my own bed. John Bon Jovi, he'll sleep when he's dead. Feedback and the letter of the week this week begins. 
The other night, me and my friends were bored to tears, so we decided to go over the road to a local small hotel bar and have a few games of pool. We had got halfway through our night, getting more bored, when who should we notice sitting in the corner drinking but none other than Rob Afuso and Rachel Bolan. We couldn't be sure until Scotty Hill walked in and then it suddenly clicked. We were in the same room as Skid Row, my favourite rock band. We both went over and the three gave us their autographs. They said Seven Dave would be down soon. By then we had gone into a state of shock. We had Skid Row to ourselves so we were no longer bored. Dave's snake came down and we chatted and he also signed the piece of paper I had. Then we waited and waited until finally Seb came down, my idol, the coolest person in the world. It was one of the best nights of my life hanging out with Skid Row. They are rock gods. Thanks guys for being so generous and willing to be friendly. You're the best. Thomas Tyne, Birmingham. I've just returned from the Army and Navy in Chelmsford where I saw Honeycrack perform. What a fucking waste of money. I wish I'd sat at home and watched Songs of Praise. The sound was crap. And Willie Dowling or whatever the fuck his name is didn't say one fucking word to us paying punters. On the other hand, the support bands played far better. The first band on were a three-piece thrash group and they fucking rocked. Mistaken Identity were miles better than anything I've heard the likes of Honeycrack Wild Hurts and Pantera play. I can't wait for their next gig. I feel well good now. The Devil's Undercarriage. A quick note to say what a great time I had last Saturday evening. No, I was not getting blown up by the fireworks outside, but by the heart-thumping voice of Sebastian Bach. I travelled from Brighton to Newport, Wales to see them, and needless to say, it was worth it. Seb and the rest of the band kept the whole place rocking. I'm sure I speak on behalf of the rest of the crowd when I uh, saw we all appreciated the variety of music they played, covering songs from all of their albums. Good luck with the rest of your tour, boys, and more Skid Row articles in Kerrang, please. Sarah Ford, Brighton. I've just bought a new Alice in Chains album and I can safely say that it's the biggest load of bollocks I've ever heard. Dirt and Facelift were fucking awesome, but I'm sorry this is about as awesome as a turd floating in a toilet. Lisi Beetroot, the Abergavenny toilet cleaner. What the fuck is going on with metal today? First of all, that damn fine drummer Chris Contos gets chucked out of Machine Head, then Kaya split up and now there is news of the worst possible split. Chris Barnes cannot be chucked out of Cannibal Corpse. They are, or were, the best death metal band on the planet and he is the best frontman vocalist in death metal. What I want to know is why was Chris Barnes sacked? Come on, Jack, Rob, Alex and Paul, can't you sort it out with Chris? I think all death metalers across the globe would be a lot happier. Paul Clayton, Pontifract. Captain's Log, Stardate 2.11.95. Tonight I just saw the Wild Hearts. Tonight my girlfriend got off with another bloke in front of me. Tonight I just saw the fucking Wild Hearts. Captain James T. Kirk, USS Enterprise. P.S. Beam me up, Scotty. Ill communication. Harvesters of Sorrow. They're dark, brooding, super heavy and downright scary. And Morat reckons that Californian mob corn might just be the next big thing. Corner Unwell. One of the hottest, most crushing bands on the planet. They are sponsored by one of the most lethal drinks in the universe, Jägermeister. The trouble is that European Jäger is about double the strength of the US stuff and Korn didn't find out until after they'd knocked back their usual amount. Vocalist bagpipe blower Jonathan Davis and drummer David, that's just David, give short answers to questions this morning and frequently drift away from the subject. We're firm believers in the rock and roll attitude, mutters David, when I note that they're obviously not a straight edge band, no booze, no drugs, etc. I can't imagine doing anything else and having this much fun. During the photo session, a bucket has to be found for bassist Fieldy and Casey Pukes. We'll make this interview a short one and fill in the gaps for them, shall we? 
The origins of the corn started about seven years ago in Bakersfield, California, where they tried all different styles before they poached Davis from a band called Sex Art. How did this unusual vocal style, imagine a Rottweiler chewing a bumblebee, develop? I had no clue what I was doing. It just came out and people liked it, he shrugs. It just developed so I didn't know what the hell to do in my voice. What about the bagpipes? My grandmother's Scottish and I always wanted to learn how to play them, Davis informs. When I went to high school, they had a band there and I started taking lessons. They were always bitching at me to play my bagpipes, so I just did it. The only other rock bands that ever used them are ACDC and comedy horror troupe Gua. Gua used a sample, dismisses John. I think I'm the only person to pick them up and play them live. People freak the fuck out. I'm a little more nervous about playing over here because in the States no one knows what the fuck they are. Here they're so much more used to it, so they pay attention. You've either got to play it perfect or you suck. One night we were in Huntington and I've been up all night on coke. David stumbles through his hangover trying to dredge up an anecdote. About 7 in the morning we went down to the beach to watch the sunrise and the waves and there was this guy playing bagpipes. He was hitting all kinds of fucked up notes. I've only heard John play so many times that I could hear that the guy was just awful. Cold's self-titled debut album, already close to going gold, 500,000 copies in the States, can be a harrowing ride at times. Take last track Daddy, an emotional and terrifying look at child abuse, a track so hard that most people I know can't listen to it all the way through. I don't really want to talk about that one, Mutters Davis. That's an intense song. If they can't listen to it, then that's okay. I can't listen to it either. We don't play it live. It's too much. There is an embarrassing silence. Uh, okay, what about faggot? When I was at high school, I was kind of a nerdy looking kid, Davis begins, hand in front of his mouth, nail varnished fingers. Because I wasn't in the cool crowd with all the jocks, I got called a faggot a lot. If you're not in the cool crowd, you get picked on. So that song is my revenge song. Because now, all those jocks who used to call me faggot come to our shows and jump up and down to faggot and I just laugh at them. It reminds me of when you walk into a bar and get shit for having pink hair or different clothes. Yep, that's exactly it, Smiles Davis. It's saying fuck you to the stereotypical people, but it all goes in a big circle. You can never get out of a stereotype. Yeah, non to David. By calling them jocks, you're stereotyping them. People need to feel like they belong somewhere, so they have to call everyone something. So what sort of audience do Corn attract? All types, whispers Davis. We've got a really diverse crowd. We've got metal kids, alternative kids. See, you're stereotyping people, hoots his sidekick. Exactly, Davis concedes, but that's the only way you can describe them. Corn kids, suggests David. It doesn't matter to us if there's a kid standing here with no hair, and a kid standing here who's got long hair, and a kid over there with blonde hair and makeup or whatever. It doesn't matter what they look like as long as they're into it. We wouldn't stereotype our own crowd. We get lots of weirdos, says John proudly. We had a girl send us a letter with a curse. She cursed us. There's some weird people, really strange people, crazy inbreds, but I like it. It's cool. I like to hang out with them all. David sips at a dodgy alcoholic cocktail. It's barely midday. I don't think we're what you'd call normal, he grins. The singles this week are reviewed by Paul Brannigan. The first single reviewed is Just Like Anyone by Soul Asylum. This one gets two Ks. Another slice of mediocre blue collar rock from Dave Perner and the boys. Gritty and melodic for sure, but there are bar bands all over America equally capable of penning this sort of raw, throated bluster. And no, I'm not bitter just because he's going out with them. Winona Ryder. No way. Shelter with their single, Here We Go. This gets 3Ks. Stomping melodic Krishnakor. Here We Go has one of the most infectious fist-in-the-air choruses this side of Green Day. Sharp, 
tangy and bouncier than Zebedee on a trampoline. Hobo Humpin' Slowbo Babe by Whale. This gets 4Ks. Fantastically groovy shag anthem from Sweden's finest, funny, funky and riotously messy with guitars spilling out into a dayglow sunset. The remix CD chills deliciously. Pure pop genius. The Behemoth with their single Fear. This one gets 1K. Hugely disappointing release from ex-Faith No More guitar icon Jim Martin's new band. Tuneless, noisy, terrible. Perry Mason by Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, Paul Brannigan gives this one three Ks. The Madman does his best go fucking crazy holler over a big boisterous swaggering riff. Guitarists may come and go but the double O consistently delivers the goods. There's life in the old dog yet. The single of the week this week is Queer by Garbage. This one gets 5Ks. An incredible knee-trembling fuck tune from Butch Vig's sound-mangling supergroup. Queer is the dirtiest pop song you'll hear all year. From the moment Shirley Manson coos let me dirty up your mind, you're sucked into the dark satin sexiness and you'll never want to leave. Gorgeously decadent and utterly fabulous. The Man Who Sold the World Solar Sun singer Dave Perner has made a packet out of one big hit. And if he ever gets short, he can borrow a few bob off his rich girlfriend. Has life always been this sweet? Asked Paul Elliott. Winona Ryder, Runaway Train. Right, that's the usual shit out of the way. Yes, Dave Perner is still doing the do with Elfin Generation X Hollywood Super Babe Winona. And yes, Runaway Train is still Perner and Soul Asylum's biggest song. Probably always will be. But there's more to Dave Perner and Soul Asylum than one song and the Winona angle. Runaway Train was just one of a stack of great songs on the band's breakthrough album Grave Dancers Union. There are more in this year's Let Your Dim Light Shine, and they were making cool records before Grave Dancers Union too. Soul Asylum were no overnight success. They've been schlepping around America in a band since 86, which probably explains why they don't give a shit about playing the fame game now that they've done all that multi-platinum heavy rotation MTV awards and front cover of Rolling Stones stuff. His girlfriend is a movie icon, but Perna remains unimpressed by the cult of celebrity. So while Soul Asylum have sold millions of albums, Perna is about as flash as Vedder or Cobain. In a sumptuous London hotel room, Perna looks out of place. A scruffy little fucker with ratty dreads and jet lag pallor. He wears greasy jeans, charity shop shirt and washed out t-shirt. He forks for a plate of cold stir fried vegetables but eats little. Perna is drinking heavy red wine and smoking continually. Small wonder his voice is so deep and cracked and dry. Dave Perna looks like he's been on the road his whole life. 10 years hard touring can do that to a man. But he loves it. Loves it as much now as when Soul Asylum played their first gig in 1986. The venue was a bar in St. Paul, Minnesota, twin city of the band's hometown of Minneapolis. The band were paid in booze, a case of Heineken and a bottle of Jack Daniels. As bassist Cole Muller recalls it, the bottle of Jack incidentally got nicked. Nothing much has changed since then. Give or take the odd platinum album, Soul Asylum still love the road and they still like a drink. And Perna still views the rock business with equal parts amusement and bemusement. So how did Soul Asylum wind up selling millions of records? Dave, any clues? The second you start worrying about how many records you've sold or why you sold them, all of a sudden you're worrying about something you never worried about before. And what is that? That's nothing to do with music. Music is magic, man. It should always be treated that way. You shouldn't sit around and think about the technology behind it. All of a sudden, you don't even remember what the fuck you started off doing. 
Music takes its own course. That's the fun thing about it for me. I just let it take me where it takes me. And if you get caught up in all that other shit, it's just a kiss of death. It's like virtuosity. It's a legitimate thing, but it doesn't have nothing to do with rock and roll. Players will be players, and the rest of us will all just sit around and go, what the fuck has that got to do with anything? Do we wish we could play like guitar bought Ungry Malmsteen? I don't know. If I could, I probably would, but it's not something I'm interested in. Music is supposed to be something that everybody can understand. And when it comes down to worrying about what a businessman decides, what everybody should understand, then you're fucked as a musician. Then you have to say, maybe I'm not a musician. You're not much of a rock star, are you? I don't know how much credence people give to their image, but I was watching MTV, I confess, and they showed this string of all the bands who played on all the MTV Music Awards, and every single band had these costumes on, and this is up till today. And they showed us for a second, and I had a crummy t-shirt on, and I thought, whoa, I gotta get a look or something. That was lame. I was the only guy wearing a t-shirt. Everybody else had these big old outfits on. You think the rock business is a bit of a joke, don't you? Well, put it this way, we were at the fucking Sex Pistols gold record party and it was 10 years after the record came out. Gold? That's only 500,000 records. And we were uh, like as happening as a punk rock band could be in America at that point. The party was in New York and there were about 30 people there. And we were the token punk rock band at that party. What the fuck is that about, man? So were you surprised when you got a hit record after all those years slumming it on the club circuit? Cutting albums that were loved by rock critics and ignored by everyone else. We pioneered talentless trash all over the place, man. We kept that tradition alive for just long enough to pass it on to all these other bands that are cashing in on it. That's okay. I don't have a problem with it. Bands are bands. Rock and roll is rock and roll. Chuck Berry still gets up there every fucking night and he's the guy who created this shit. It's a beautiful noise. You can't dress it up. You can't take it out. You can't make it sound like Ungri. Man, Ungri's good, but so what? How did you feel when you finished Grave Dancers Union? Did you think you had a hot potato in your hands? We always thought our music was accessible, but the band had always been the same. The time was just right. Our producer said to us, you guys really did it this time. And in a way, he was right. Let Your Dim Light Shine is a good record, but it didn't eclipse Runaway Train. That song is Soul Asylum Smells Like Teen Spirit. The one your milkman can whistle. Is it a problem when people always talk about just one song? You want to make a statement, but a band can't be defined by one video or two singles. Has success improved life for Dave Perna and Soul Asylum? I think just being able to maintain a general production level is the main thing. When the band can't afford to tour anymore, that becomes a real problem. I want to spend a lot of money in the studio too. I mean, a nice hotel room is a nice hotel room, but it doesn't really mean that much to me. I don't spend much time there, but it's good when the toilet paper's better. Can you live a sane life? Success means working closer to what an average person does. A reasonable schedule. We've always tried to work that way. This jet lag is killing me. That's the way it's always going to be for a traveller. It's a gypsy tradition and I love that. But it's hard sometimes. Ultimately success would be to eat, sleep and pray when you want. And to make people come and see you. And the secret to keeping it all together? Ha! If we knew the secrets to our success, we'd be on tour right now. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. We now come to albums, and the album of the week this week is Fishing for More Luckies by the Wild Hearts. This one is reviewed by Jason Arnott, and this one gets 5Ks. Fishing for Luckies was the colossal mini album originally released at the end of 1994. Never the easiest of Wild Hearts set to absorb, its songs were originally intended for the band's Fuck album. 
Allegedly, due to record company East West not caring for the material's left field nature, the Wild Hearts were forced to release fishing themselves via mail order, eventually shifting about 8,000 copies. That's not bad going, but not nearly so satisfying when you consider that fishing is one of the best things released in the last few years. Brilliant is meant to be heard. This, then, is the long overdue major release, combining the six epic tracks with three previously unavailable items. Fishing for more luckies will also be available on cassette for the first time, but the Wild Hearts have made their disapproval plain. They don't want you to buy this album. It's understandable, seeing as one track is the original version of I Wanna Go Where The People Go. As any Wild Hearts fans will know, demos, remixes and general bullshit have never even had a place on the band's singles, let alone their albums. On the other hand, if every rock fan in the country bought a copy of Fishing For More Luckies, the Wild Hearts would be freed from their mountainous debt to east-west, probably. Thoughts of industry bollocks crumble, however, as Inglorious kicks the door in and swings one of the band's harshest sucker punches, spitting venom with every flick of its riffs. This is the Wild Hearts at their most strikingly potent, not so much hitting the nail on the head as obliterating the bastard. If life is like a love bank, I want an overdraft, a simple all-out slugger, and Geordie in Wonderland, Ginger's Pogues tribute, are both under four minutes long and were released as a double A-side single. Should have been a Christmas number one. Schizophonic is a be-yourself rant, don't get lost in corporate corridors, with bizarre sound effects and more hooks than any one song has a right to own. Ginger was pulling out the stops on these creations, ballooning his songwriting craft to new heights of excess. Do the Channel Bop is even more outlandish with a gorgeous verse line and a freak-out chorus involving a children's choir. Eight minutes of crazed delight. The least palatable tracks was always the 12 minute Sky Babies. Initially sounding like four songs pasted together, now it's just a big fat joy and understandably one of Ginger's proudest moments. But by far the best bonus cut is Underkill, the fourth track the Wild Hearts recorded during their brief liaison with guitarist vocalist Mark Kent. It's an up-tempo beauty. Now, minus the closing Sex Pistols sample which originally forced it to be pulled from the Justin Lust single. Saddened is just 86 seconds of Ginger crooning softly along to an orchestra. It's too short to really stir and offers no thrilling bonus in this context. Likewise, the original version of I Wanna Go is an underdeveloped embryo, slower and much less caustic than the final cut. So do we hack off a K for the rating? Do we fuck? Genius is still genius, with dodgy stuff tagged on the end or not. Let's fish. The next review is for Offspring by The Offspring. This one, again, is reviewed by Jason Arnop and this gets two Ks. Offspring, much like Green Day, were one of the less expected punk rock phenomena. Back when their second album Ignition was released through California's Epitaph Records in 93, there was frankly little to suggest that they might soon blossom forth beyond label mates Bad Religion, No Effects, Rancid or even Pennywise. Blossom they did, however, with Smash, the 1994 album which sold millions and simultaneously transformed Epitaph from a happily chugging indie to a majorly important force in the world of modern rock music. Bad Religion had all the classic tunes and they had been going since 1980, yet these four Orange County punks quickly overtook them, at least in the unit-shifting states. This, then, is the band's 1989 debut, originally released on the obscure Nemesis label Raw, undisciplined and ugly, the sound of a band still excited at the thought of playing the bar down the road. It sold 3,000 copies, which probably delighted the quartet no end. Remember, this was the year Nirvana released their humble Bleach debut. Smells Like Teen Spirit was just a twinkle in Kurt Cobain's eye, and punk rock wasn't supposed to sell more than a few thousand. 
This debut shows that Offspring had sacks of youthful energy, but by today's standards, it pales into mere curio status. This was just the first stepping stone on the way to such well-crafted mega hits as self-esteem and come out and play, keep them separated. Clumsy and unfocused it may be, but at least the Offspring demonstrates that the four-piece weren't just pieced together overnight. They clearly paid their dues, sweating away in their Orange County garage, knocking out songs which felt great, simply because all four members ended the songs together at the same time nearly. Everything from the Offspring's hi-hat obsessed production to the negligible tightness factor screams early days. Anyone interested in discovering the band's genesis may well be sated, but a tongue-in-cheek cover sticker contained punk rock, which may be habit-forming, is somewhat ironic. Back in 89, this band had no idea how to pen a real tune. Singer Dexter Holland is merely hollering along with commendable gusto. You can trace the beginnings to the present day. The Middle Eastern sound in Tehran, for instance, hints at the groovy accessibility that was to become dance floor fave come out and play, keep them separated six years on. It is, however, a faded blueprint. Offspring were just babies in 1989. The next review this week is for Bad Religion with their album All Ages. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 5Ks. Over their 15-year career, Bad Religion have secured a unique niche in hardcore history with their passionate, articulate rock. They are the definitive sound of Southern California punk, trailblazers and inspiration for Green Day Rancid and a generation of young soul rebels. This album, which serves as a roundup of the band's output on their own hugely influential Epitaph label, is an awesome document. With albums such as Suffer and No Control, Bad Religion spat life into a moribund US hardcore scene. Listening now at a time when our ears are being assorted by so much watered-down identity aggro, it's astonishing how powerful, intense and contemporary the songs still are. Bad Religion's exhilarating melodico is based around guitarist Brett Guritz's blazing hook-filled riffing and vocalist Grid Graffin's aching, eloquent vocals. The limitations of the genre are overcome by the band's enormous drive and fire, muscle-meeting melody with stunning fury. There's a line in No Direction which says no bad religion song can make your life complete. True enough, but All Ages contains 22 songs guaranteed to rock your world. 21st Century Digital Boy, Atomic Garden, I Wanna Cock in the World, no self-respecting 90s punk should be without these songs. Blistering slices of end of millennium dissatisfaction and rage. All Ages savagely explodes the smug complacency of the class of 77 punk boards. These songs are as scathing, anarchic and relentless as anything previously committed to multi-hued vinyl. The rhythm section surges and seethes. The guitars are permanently set to stun. Graffin's vocals are earnest and uplifting. These are the tunes that spawned a new punk nation, the blueprint by which lesser bands have achieved world domination. You need this album, a fabulous testament to a band who've um, proudly flown the punk flag irrespective of trends and flavour of the month credibility. Utterly essential. Next up in the album section, we have the In Brief section. The first album reviewed is Adrenaline by Deftones. This one is reviewed by Paul Brannigan and this gets 4Ks. A quartet whose sound falls between quicksand, rest in peace, and tall. Deftones explode from atmospheric croons into buck-mad rages. Excellent production from Terry Date allows the crisp guitar on Lifter and Seven Words to shine. Board and nosebleed are just as blunt and angry slabs of guitar crashing down on swirling hypnotic rhythms. Impressive. Next up we have What a Wonderful Feeling to be Fucked by Everyone. This is by English Dogs 
This one is reviewed by Morat and this gets 4Ks. Splendid five-track taste for the forthcoming album. No one thought they could replace vocalist Wakey, but recruiting police bastard frontman Stu Pid was a stroke of genius, and they're now writing way better tunes. Produced by the Dogs and ex-Sabbath man Andy Sneap, this is a vital, fresh offering to rival anything the US spiky tops gobber us. The next album reviewed is Queen, with their album Made in Heaven. Reviewed by Liam Charles, this gets 2Ks. There may not be one among us who was cold-hearted enough not to shed a tear when Freddie Mercury shrugged off his mortal burden four years ago. But as legacies go, Made in Heaven is an uninspired, gently-paced and largely guitarless one, lacking the drama that made Queen one of rock's most brilliant attractions. Innuendo is a far superior epitaph. The last album reviewed this week is Scattered, Smothered and Covered by Unsane. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 2Ks. Unsane are contemporaries of Helmet and Cop Shoot Cop on the New York noise scene, so guess what they sound like? Lurching rhythms, biting guitar, hoarse, angry vocals. Blue, ruin, out. All are harsh scraping tunes with industrial overtones and full of lyrics of urban disaffection. Exactly what you'd expect. Highly predictable, and it has to be said, somewhat pointless. Charts and number one in the album's chart is Made in Heaven Queen. Number one in the indie LP's chart is Ugly by Life of Agony. And number one in the singles chart is Diane by Therapy. The reader's top 10 this week comes from Uncle Ribcage from Cheshire. Their chart begins one, Willie the Pimp, Frank Zappa, two, Supernaut Sabbath, three, Killers Iron Maiden, four, I Like Traffic Lights, Monty Python, five, Never Say Die, Black Sabbath, six, one, Metallica, seven, Wacker, Joacca, Frank Zappa, 8. Sign of the Cross Iron Maiden, 9. Heartwork Carcass, and 10. Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Star Tracks this week comes from Ray Capo of Shelter. His chart begins 1. Pain, Dub War, 2. Anything by Lush, 3. Cypress Hill, Cypress Hill, 4. Love, Love, and 5. Demanufacture, Fear Factory. Next week in Kerrang! Back Issues. Alice in Chains, Titty Bars, Strip Joints, and Bad Fart Jokes. Truly, madly, deeply, are these three men the future sound of Seattle? Pearl Jam, Eddie goes to the movies. Paradise Lost, what's in your wallet, fellas? Turnover for full details of two giant posters, free in next week's Kerrang! Just turning over and the giant posters of Nirvana and Bon Jovi. Are you this week's scratch card winner? Who knows? Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back next Wednesday as usual. And I look forward to talking to you all then. Um, yeah, so hope you all have good weeks, uh, and I hope uh, for those that are enjoying the World Cup, you're enjoying the World Cup as it's uh, as it's been going so far. Bit of a weird one. I've been watching the um, Netflix documentaries about FIFA, and I feel very, very weird about this World Cup. Um, I don't usually talk about contemporary stuff on this podcast, just because. Um, yeah, I don't I don't want to date it too much, but obviously I'm talking about this in November 2022. Those that are listening in the future, I just think this World Cup, you know, it shouldn't be happening. It's a load of crap, but I will probably end up watching a bit of the football just because I quite like football. Anyway, that's uh, that's my two cents at the end of this podcast. Uh, for anyone that's still listening, uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Back next week, talk to you all then. Bye for now. We are